Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, July 22nd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a new peer report alleges shortcomings within the state parole board. Then, enhanced unemployment insurance dries up, and bluesman Bobby Rush releases a memoir. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Mississippi Parole Board holds sole authority to grant or refuse parole in the state. A new peer report alleges the board has fallen short of expectations for expediency and transparency. James Barber helped author the report. He says the peer committee found that almost half of parole-eligible offenders received delayed hearings. We examined information that is included in the Department of Corrections inmate management system to take a look at the the dates on which parole hearings should be held for various offenders. And based on the original source documents in that system, we saw that the parole board was not scheduling hearings in a timely manner for all of the offenders who were eligible to be heard. The peer report also found that some inmates who should have been automatically eligible for parole were nonetheless made to appear before the parole board. Additionally, it alleges board members worked less than 40-hour weeks, and some members received large travel reimbursements that violate rules for state employees. But Steve Pickett, who chairs the parole board, insists the report mischaracterizes his and his colleagues' work. He speaks with MPB's Desiree Frazier. And 2019, we had 7,974 hearings. There was never a backlog of any cases in 2019. And every month, we completed the docket that was before us at that time. So how is it that they came up with there were untimely hearings? What was the reason behind that? Were you able to determine? I believe their methodology was they took 150 cases and and just looked at those kind of as a snapshot. And what you have to consider is that inmates, you know, have one date when they're sentenced that they're given based upon the judge's sentence. And then once the county days that are served prior to their incarceration in the state facility 
are presented to the state, then they get credit for those, and that changes the eligibility date. But in 2019, there was there's never a backlog of cases, and has not been a backlog of cases for more than five you know five years. So you're saying it takes a while for the jail reports to be turned in from MDOC. To MDOC, yes. To MDOC, yeah. okay. And they have to be requested from each county, and you know, just just like in my example that that I gave them, if if, if you're incarcerated from November to February and you get sentenced in February, then you're going to get credit for that time that you spent awaiting sentencing. Ineffective use of presumptive parole. What is presumptive parole? Well, I, uh, presumptive parole, uh, you know, in theory, uh, is a good idea. It's going to be that the inmates are going to participate in programming, and if they, you know, if they if they don't have rule violations and they've completed all these different things, that that you know that that they're going to be paroled. The problem with the parole board and presumptive parole is that we're not going to sign a certificate based upon a, a case that we've not looked at before we sign the certificate. We're going to go back and verify. The, the argument with you know with why why we're not compliant with presumptive parole is the simple fact that we're looking at the cases after the completion of the program and not before. We also have concerns about how are persons selected for presumptive parole because it's our opinion that it should be first-time offenders, and it certainly should not be uh, life sentences. And it certainly should not be cases that are eligible for parole and yet have a detainer for murder in a county. So there's, there are a lot of things that we you know, have concerns about that we're just not going to blindly sign certificates. So in essence, does that mean that if someone is involved in programming and their parole date comes, that they can, by law, be released without going before the parole board? I don't know if that was the intent of the law or not when it was uh, when it was written. I know that you know part of 580. There are lots of parts of 585 that that have not been implemented. You know, the, and and of course, you know, it's it's hard to say that you're able to do programming when you don't offer certain programming. So only in the last few years have you know have things you know the, the welding and the and the partnership with Ingles and things like that the truck driving schools that that's that that's even been an option for you know inmates uh, incarcerated so it's presumptive parole is a work in progress but uh, in in theory uh, it 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 should work in practice you know we're dealing with people. And we're dealing uh, with, you know, the lives of the general public are in our hands. And we're just not going to release people without a full review. Well, how do you respond to unauthorized travel reimbursements? It notes that one board member uh, received more than $20,000 in reimbursements in 2019. Yes. Uh, the, the decision to look at the board uh, through the lens of being uh, employees of the state and not appointed board members uh, as a result of last year's audit, uh, that, that that decision was made uh, internally uh, through uh, the fiscal office and uh, the auditor's office, that the reimbursement and the state travel is literally in our budget. And, of course, we're audited every year. So there, there are uh, no missing funds or any funds that have been embezzled by anyone. And 
the travel reimbursements all have receipts and and were paid uh, members were reimbursed throughout the state you know for for many years that that come from multiple counties all across the state you know for for 31 years the members that live 60 miles or more have been reimbursed for their expenses to serve on the board this is a decision to look at the members of the board through the lens of being an employee for which you cannot be paid to commute to work. Uh, the auditor's uh, report uh, was released and the, the policy was affected, changed by the Department of Corrections fiscal agent, which of course is you know the, the, the folks that issue uh, our payroll and deal with reimbursements for the parole board because our budget is a subcomponent of MDOC's budget. But the in-state travel has been in the budget and line item number three for more than 20 years. Now, are y'all working full-time? Because the report says you're supposed to work full-time, but members are not working full-time. Yes, the, me- the members of the parole board work full-time. Most of the t- and most evenings, there are at least you know one or two members that are here well after 6 o'clock. Uh, our, our numbers speak for themselves. You, you can't do 7,000 cases in a year and, and not be working full time. So we have addressed that uh, that issue in our in our response. Members of the peer committee said that they were at the office in this report on Friday and board members weren't in the office. Which Friday are you referring to? They didn't give specifics, but I know in the report there was a space of time in October. The, the, the report cites October 25th through the 30th, and of course the 25th and the 26th was Saturday and Sunday. So uh, the answer to your question is, is that we do work full-time, and most days our hearings fill over into lunch, uh, and we're, you know, we're still right here continuing to work through lunch because the hearings have no time limit on them. So we don't know how long we're going to, if we start, you know, at nine o'clock uh, and you've got 25 per life cases, you, you, you don't know how long you're going to be there. Chairman Steve Pickett, we appreciate your time in speaking with us about the legislative peer report and what the Mississippi State Parole Board is doing. Thank you. Next year, the state legislature will decide whether to keep the parole board as an autonomous entity or place it under the authority of the Department of Corrections. Coming up, enhanced unemployment benefits end in Louisiana. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The clock is ticking on the extra unemployment benefits that have been a lifeline for out-of-a-job workers during the pandemic. The additional $300 payments from the federal government will end on July 31st in Louisiana. Alabama and Mississippi have already opted out, saying the benefits kept residents from looking for jobs. Stephen Basaha of the Gulf States Newsroom brings us one woman's story that shows returning to work isn't always as simple as following the help wanted signs. Dora Whitfield has a lot of pride in her house. When she and her husband Curtis bought it in 2014, they surprised the whole family by bringing them out front the day after Christmas. And it was like, yeah, you, this your house? 
and it was so lovely. I didn't have no food for them, and we didn't have no, no chairs in here. I just wanted to show them around because it was like, this, this is your Christmas present. I said, yes, it is. Whitfield has a big smile as she leans against her marble-topped island in her open-concept kitchen, the kind of smile that would fit perfectly on a brochure for homeownership. In one of her three bedrooms, she keeps two Bibles open to specific psalms to bless her house. And I'm proud of what I've accomplished because I stayed in public housing for like 30 years. So for them to be able to get a key to go into something that belonged to you is like, ooh, you know. But this year will scare me to lose this. Whitfield was able to afford the house because of the tips she earned as a waitress at Harris Casino, about $100 each day, 200 on weekends. Yeah, because it's bottomless mimosa and all-you-can-eat seafood, so the money was good. People were tipping well when it's bottomless mimosas. Dora, keep that glass flowing. Okay. And once you make somebody happy, the tips are happy. Paying bills was almost like a matching game. A $100 light bill arrived on Thursday? Cover it with Friday's tips. Mortgage? Combine a couple mimosa weekends. I never was behind on no bill. But the game changed March 2020. COVID-19 shut down the casino and its buffet. Like a lot of workers, Whitfield was laid off. Now I'm like panicking because now it's like what bill you pay this week and what bill you just have to call and get extension on now because you're not used to receiving 200 and some dollars a week now. That's how much Louisiana gave her in unemployment, about $240 a week. She eventually got more help, including an additional $300 per week in federal unemployment benefits. She says that kept her above water, and she's waiting for the casino to bring her back. But there's a lot she doesn't know, like when that will happen and what kind of job will be waiting for her. The buffet is still closed, and Winfield's heard rumors that it might be replaced place with a food court, meaning a job without tips. Whitfield's 56 and doesn't want to leave Harrah's, a company she's been with for nearly two decades, but she might have to. You're comfortable because it's a good company and they got good insurance. And then you go somewhere else and you might have no insurance. And it's like you're starting over like you're crawling. I'm walking now with this company. I don't want to crawl. But with Louisiana ending federal unemployment benefits on July 31st, she's not sure she can wait for the casino. More than 200,000 others in Louisiana will also no longer receive the $300 weekly benefits. States like Mississippi and Alabama that have already ended those benefits have seen more people returning to work like they wanted. But economists say it's too early to prove that was the main motivation. There are also plenty of other barriers keeping people from working. Some might still be concerned about returning to work, especially with the rise of the Delta variant of the coronavirus. Others can't find childcare. Some, like Whitfield, are just holding out and hoping their old job will come back. My head be swimming sometimes. I don't know what to do. You mean you're, what do you mean by that? Oh, Lord, what should I do? What should I do? Should I... Get up with these bad knees and walk around Walmart. Uh, should I wait on the casino to call? Uh, it's a lot. It's not just the end of unemployment checks pressuring her and others to make that decision soon. Mortgage companies are resuming payments. The CDC's eviction moratorium ends July 31st. With the support they relied on ending, Whitfield and lots of other Americans are feeling more pressure to accept any job they can get. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Stephen Basaha. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between WBHM in Birmingham, WWNO in New Orleans, Mississippi Public Broadcasting, and NPR. Coming up, a conversation with bluesman Bobby Rush. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. In the 60s and 70s, Bobby Rush captivated Chicago with his funky brand of blues. In the decades since, his work has earned national and international acclaim, including six Grammy nominations and two wins. As for the man himself, it's only minor hyperbole to say that meeting Bobby is something like staring into the sun. His presence is impossibly vibrant. He's full of energy. He's funny. Stardom fits him like a glove. But like most Delta Blues stories, Bobby Rush's life began modestly. In his new memoir, Colin I Ain't Studdin' the Blues, Bobby recalls his childhood in the small town south. My dad had been a preacher, pastor of a church. He never told me to sing the blues, but he never told me not to. I remember this one particular time I told him in the book that he said, boy, give me the guitar here. I had hid it in a loft like in a bun because I didn't want to bring it in the house because I thought my daddy wanted me to sing gospel, and I didn't want to sing gospel. I wanted to sing the blues like Muddy Water and Olive Wolf and John Lee Hook and them kept like that. And I hid it because I didn't want to play in the church. And I didn't play in the church. So he said, bring that guitar here, boy. And I brought the guitar to him. And he said, let me play a song I used to play for the little girl when I was older than you. Well, I want to hear it because I just thought in my little head there's going to be either glory, glory, hallelujah, gospel song, or something about my mama. He said, me and my girl went to Chanky Pen hunting. She fell down and I saw something. I know from that point, but my daddy being a preacher when he said that, I said, wow, I'm going to be a blues singer. Like this was, <laughs> from, from that age, I knew what I wanted to be. When you went to Chicago playing music, were you able to make a living at it? No, I wasn't able to make a living on it, but I was willing to take a chance on making a living of it. I was working at a job during the daytime, and sometime later on, I would get bottles, scrap metals on those trucks, and I would pick up metal through the week, and I would take it to the junk yard and sell canned iron, whatever I could pick up, try to make me 4 or $5. And, and that's what I've done. Didn't want nobody to know that that was the Bobby Rush out with a junk truck picking up things. I got a job at that time. I was married. They wanted me to have a real job, and playing music wasn't a real job. Going to work at Sears Roebuck or some factory or something, that was a real job to them at the time. But that wasn't what I wanted to do. I just only did that temporarily to I got enough money to buy me a guitar, some drums, an amplifier, something like that. This is what I wanted to do, and that's what I did. What experiences or influences really steered you? I think it was Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, B.B. King, John Lee Hooker, Jimmy Reed, Bo Diddley, people like that, and Willie Dixon, Lil Walter. So at the young age of 86 now, you decide to write a book. Or maybe you start, did you start years ago, or was it? Oh, I wanted to write this book maybe 25 years ago. I could have wrote it, but I didn't want to write the book because I was stepping on my own toes and other people's toes, too, because I wanted to write about people that I loved and people that I respect. And that was Muddy Water, Holland Wolf, people like that. Then, that. then Willie Dixon was my friend also. So was the guy he was writing for. He said, and I kind of told this story. Because now, I know I'm going to get some slack from it. Because Willie Dixon went down to write it for all them guys. He was smart enough to put it on paper. How can you write for a guy who couldn't read or write? It just don't make no sense. you know. And I know that for a fact. And Buddy Guy 
knows it, but he never talked about it. Willie Dixon was a black guy who was working for a white record company, but he was stealing from the black guys for the white people. It wasn't it wasn't the white people themselves. He was stealing the, the rights from the black entertainers for the, for the white guys who owned the record company. So you couldn't so tell now, that story 25 years ago, obviously. Oh, I couldn't tell that story because but now all the songs that Muddy Water supposed to wrote, Willie Dixon wrote it. And Willie Dixon kids getting it and grandkids getting the money from records. But what about Muddy Water grandkids and grand great grandkids and Howlin' Wolf or people like that? And a Bobby Rush. What about that? Even Chicken Head on some of my biggest records. Calvin Carter was a black man who was with the BJ Record who took my record. He put my name on the record, but when he turned it in at BMI, wouldn't nobody only been him. Have you ever gotten uh, paid for those records? No, 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 I didn't get paid for them because Station Unlimited was out on it by the time I had the knowledge of trying to get them. I did get my songs back, but that's, but that's in the past. They, they don't get outplay now for me to get play on those records. Now you own them, but what good are you own them? It's just like, it's just like you own a bank and no money in it. That's a horrible thing to have happen to you, but I want to mention you are a man who exudes joy. Yeah, I'll to be honest with you. That's why I wrote this book. That's why I want people to read this book and, and to come out with this in mind. Out of all the hardship that I went through, the ups and downs, if I make it out of this when you read it, you can too. That's what I want people to come out with because I know that some people had a harder time than I had. I know somebody had a better time than I had. But nevertheless, the shift, the hardship, the hills that I climbed, the battle that I was in, if I made it out of this, you can too. Because not only just I'm a blues fan, I'm a black blues man, and I've been black all of my life. And surely I know what it feels like to be a black man and have some opportunity not in my face like other races. But I, but I don't have no chip on my shoulder about anything because whatever happened to me, most of it is because I brought it on myself. And I'm still so blessed to be enthused. You know, a man or woman can live a long time without water or food, but you can't live alone without hope. At 87 years old in a few months, I still have hope, and I'm still learning. You've taught a lot of people in regard to your music. I think it informs people about the blues and about your life, and certainly this book is going to do that. You know, I just want to mention before we leave, you have won 13 Blues Music Awards. You've won two Grammys. You are in the Blues Hall of Fame, the Mississippi Musicians Hall of Fame, the Rhythm and Blues Hall of Fame, Music Hall of Fame, Mississippi Blues Trail. How, how did you have time to write a book? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, really what I did, a book is in my head. I just wrote about the thing, where I've been, what I've done, and things I wish and hope for, and the things I've been involved with. And I kind of wrote about them. And, I, and that was, that's not everything. I wrote what I thought was an important thing to me that I could tell and still uh, keep my head level because I have too much to write, put in one book. You know, even even though this book is a little longer than I wanted it to be, you know, because people are impatient. People don't have enough time to sit down and read this much unless they get tied up in it and know me as a fan and a person who wants to learn from what I've done so they could do better for themselves. That's my main thoughts of doing this. You know, there's so many things I didn't tell that that, that maybe need to be told or what I would like to tell. You can expect a sequel of this book? Oh, yeah. I got so many things I didn't talk about. Are you, you going know? to retire at any time? Uh, no, I don't have plan to. I don't have plan to. Maybe 
Maybe 50 years or so. <laughs> well, I'll be gone by then, but I sure hope you're yeah, still yeah, going. No, Bobby Rush no. is the author of I Ain't Studdin' Ya, My American Blues Story. Bobby Rush, you are a treasure, and I thank you so much for talking with me. Let me thank you so much for just calling me. Thanks for having me on. Because what you say about me, what people perceive me to be, my thought is not I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try my best to do everything I can why I can. When that come a time I can't do, I won't regret what I did not do. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.